Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. The Athletic. The Race F1 Tech Show. Brought to you by Aramco. How does an F1 car lift a drain cover off the ground? Is this year's Red Bull the greatest car of the modern era? And would push to pass be better than DRS? We answer those questions and more. Welcome to another episode of the Race F1 Tech Show, brought to you by Aramco. I'm your host, Ed Straw, but the beating heart of this podcast is the legend that is Gary Anderson. So welcome, Gary. You obviously followed the Las Vegas Grand Prix very closely. How much did you enjoy that? Yep, I did get up early in the morning. I wanted to see it from the start, really. Um, obviously, a little disappointed in the first session. Disappeared very quickly. But that I thought was very good. You know, it's um, again, it's it's one of those sort of situations where it is Las Vegas. So, you know, the glitz and glamour is going to be there whether you like it or whether you don't. Uh, we saw it in Miami um, to some degree, but, you know, Vegas is a completely different uh, entity. But the track itself, you know, separating it from the, the, the flashing lights and all the stuff that's going on, I think the track itself was actually okay. You know, a lot of criticism before about it being um, super fast and no high-speed corners to load the tyres up and so on and so forth. But in general, I think, you know, as a street circuit, it was fast. It was demanding. Um, and, you know, it required the drivers to dig deep and, and um, be sort of a little bit... Uh, conservative about how they approached it because at the end of the day it was very easy to throw off the road and uh, and damage the car you know the, the barriers aren't far the walls aren't far away so you've got to be a little bit um, respectful of a, of a track like that and I think it brought everything that uh, you know high speed street track should bring exactly including a little bit of chaos particularly with some of those drivers being a little bit too ambitious at the low grip first corner but yeah certainly an, an interesting race here I've just uh, recently landed back from there I've got a brief window uh, in the UK before I head off to uh, to Abu Dhabi. So that's ideal for having some uh, some tech chats. And I guess we've got to talk about drain covers, haven't we? Because I think this is also something you've got a little bit of experience of from your racing career as well um, on the uh, on the pit wall. Yeah, I have. Um, I mean, it, it wasn't so much a drain cover in Vegas. It was just one of these water taps. So it's a, I don't know what it is, six, eight inch type pipe that basically you can put your hand down in there and turn off the, the, the water feed to one of the glitzy, glamoury hotels. Um, so it wasn't as big a, an issue, really, as what it, it ended up being, because, to be honest, you could have taken those lids up and drove on the track. It might have been a bit of a hole there, but it wasn't a big enough hole, for for example, for the, uh, for the wheels to fall into. Um, so they, they did fix it correctly. It took a bit of time, obviously, to take them all up and fill them with sand and, and tarmac or concrete them in. So it removed the fact of the lid coming off. But it's one of these things, um, it's so hard to really, really understand the forces that these cars put into stuff, you know, on the track surface. I mean, the shear load, for example, of these cars is huge. And also, one of the things I said in live, I thought that before, whenever you saw Saints coming up to that area, there was a, a strange patch there, like the cars could have been hitting the ground. That at that point, and basically, if that if that does, if the car does hit the ground there, then 
obviously you end up with a, a, a huge shear load on that on that component that's buried in the ground, and that could have loosened it a bit. So all in all, you know, it, it did happen. You can't turn the clock back, but um, it did it did do a lot of damage. So uh, at the end of the day, it's it's not nice when it happens, but they reacted and they did the best job they could, and it didn't reoccur during the weekend. Yeah, that's the main thing. This does happen at street circuits sometimes, even non-street circuits, permanent facilities, we've seen it as well. And it was good they got that 90-minute free practice session uh, away on the first day, finally, and then no problems later in the afternoon. But it did cause, of course, a lot of damage to Carlos Sciences Ferrari, all sorts of figures being cho- being thrown around for how much that costs. And certainly it's a seven-figure sum. It basically, uh, well, it, it gouged a hole in, in, the, uh, in, in the chassis. And obviously Ocon had a, a similar problem with it. And it's uh, also that incident did some bodywork damage to Joe Sauber. So across those three cars, quite a significant amount of uh, of damage. So do you have sympathy for Ferrari for that, especially given the science to add insult to injury, got that grid penalty for power unit component changes? Yeah, I have more sympathy about the uh, the, the penalty, to be honest, because in, in the reality of it is, you know, it, it was no fault of their own um, that those things happened. And obviously the, the, the cost is something, it is a big cost, but it is the end of the season. You know, if this had been the third or fourth race into the season, then that cost would have had to have been, you know, um, spread out over the over the year, and they probably had to have you know built another chassis and lots of stuff like that. But right now, they probably don't have to. They're probably going into um, you know a, a new car, which will have new chassis anyway. So I don't think I don't think it's as big an inconvenience as far as the um, the cost is concerned as it is for the penalty. And I think it was absurd, really, that he got the 10-place grid penalty. I just, just do not understand why they couldn't see the big picture. Um, I can understand the teams, you know, some of the teams might be getting a bit excited about all of that, but the reality of it is what happened there is is something that's, you know, it's not a common happening. Um, so, yeah, compensation financially is one thing, but I don't think that's the big thing. I think we've got to look at finding a way where the the stewards, which you know, they're there to make judgment on certain things, and the stewards should be able to judge a situation. And I'll take an example. I mean, what happens if you're out? You know, if, if they've been racing somewhere in the wet, safety car is sent out at the front of it, um, and the safety car spins, uh, you know, in a fast corner somewhere, and comes back on and t-bones the leader and, and wipes them out. What what are they going to do with that? Say, oh, there's no precedent for that. But it's just around the corner from happening in reality. You know, it's, it, it could happen tomorrow or next week. Um, so, that, you know, there has to be some sort of governing body above it all that can sort of look down and say, hang on a minute, boys, this is a bit stupid here. Um, and, and just make that decision and then, you know, inform the teams that no protests will be, uh, will be accepted. It's quite simple because it's in everybody's interest. It could happen to anybody at any point in time. And um, so anyway, that's my my little moan about that well it's an example of how f1 gets a little bit caught up in its own regulations because the stewards wanted to give an exemption but by their reading the rules they weren't actually allowed to so i think that does illustrate the stewards need to be given a bit more leeway i guess the one counter argument is if there is if, if this kind of thing is accepted as a force majeure type thing that means you can get away with it I mean, you've been in these teams. I'm, I imagine if you were on the pit, well, you'd be coming up with all sorts of arguments for why such and such penalties, oh, force majeure, apply. So I, I guess that's the, the one fear, isn't it? That you open a can of worms. And it, 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 I think we can all agree that that particular incident for science should probably be something they, they should be, be let off. But then you inch a little bit closer towards normal ones and, and where's the dividing line? And we know what teams will be like in terms of lobbying for it. 
Yeah, I understand that. But, you know, I suppose what I what I would reflect back to is, you know, the fact that, well, long gone are the days of Bernie getting on the phone to somebody saying, hey, come on, mate, you know, just let them get away with that. It's okay. You know, that's, that's, this, is the, this is the sport. Because those things did happen and, and, you know, there had to be a way through it all. I think we have got too, too corporate now, to be honest. That's, that's the big thing. You know, it, this, what we see from a Friday morning to a Sunday night is, in reality, a huge business. But it is a sport, simply a sport down there somewhere. And, um, you know, that, that's what I think we, watching it, want to see is the sportsmanship coming in now and again where, you know, the teams will be big enough to say, OK, that could have been us. That could have been me that was, you know, having that problem. And would Ferrari have stood in our way of not having the 10-place penalty? They might have done, I don't know. But at the end of the day, you know, it's a small world and what comes around goes around. So I, I think sometimes you need to look a bit bigger. I don't think the, the, the stewards should be able to sit there and say, well, you know, we would love to let you away with it, but we can't because the regulations are the regulations. It's, it's, it's such a, a, you know, that's what it's all about. That's what the stewards are there for, that extra judgment that needs to be made about something. And um, if you can put forward a reasonable plea as to why you've done it, i.e., let's say, you know, getting getting done for being too slow on the, on, a, on the outlap or something, then the stewards will listen to you and accept it. But the regulation's still there to say, if you go slower than X, you will get done for it. But you can go slower than X because I had to pull across a little bit here because there was somebody coming up fast behind me. So they take that judgment into account. And whenever Ferrari said, well, you know, we didn't expect it to be an eight-inch steel manhole cover lying on the track in front of us. You know, that wasn't in the regulations that said you had to make your car ride high enough to, to cover these things. So, you know, it's it, it happened. It's It shouldn't have happened. It did happen. A car hit it. And then that car suffers the penalty. And again, as I say, I think the stewards should be, should be have enough um, authority to actually say, no, in this case, sorry, chaps, but uh, this one we're letting them away with. I think that connects to the wider problem with the way the regulations are framed and the level to which the stewards are empowered. Ultimately, they have to apply a almost a, a real court level of uh, interpretation in case it goes to courts of appeal and all that kind of thing. But uh, certainly there's going to be talks about that. And Fred Vasseur was talking about that after the race, that they're going to push for something to change in the future. But obviously, it was interesting as well, just from a technical point of view, how that water valve cover ended up being lifted because there's kind of a combination of things at play because you have the, the the kind of effect that the cars have of lifting it plus also the fact that it was that sort of concrete surround wasn't it that was seemed to be getting chipped away at so you could also kind of get the the car directly hitting it so it seemed to be a combination of the two that led to the uh, incident yeah i mean you know the cars will always tend to lift things off the ground they are very good vacuum cleaners um, so at the end of the day, there is a low pressure underneath the car trying to pick this sort of stuff up. But also the tyres, you know, as the tyre rotates over the top of it, they they become, even though it's a low grip circuit, they still become sticky. They want to pick stuff up that's there. So they, you know, once the the, uh, the manhole cover, the little uh, hatch became loose, then I think at the end of the day, it's, it's only a matter of time before it comes up. And I think probably some some car pulled it up a little bit out of the ground, and then another one would would clout it a little bit and then another one would hit it harder so it's one of those sort of situations where it's, it's only going to get worse once it starts to move because um you know they are bolted down but you know one of the 
going back in the old days when you know Charlie Whiting was doing it, it those those sort of things would be sort of welded down to their main tube that holds them into the ground. And I assume there is a steel tube in there that the the, the cover went into, um, and it's not just the concrete around it. But you can see the chip, the uh, the concrete chipped away in the pictures, and it's um, I mean that'll be because of the lid coming out for sure. It will distort everything. So the cars will try and pick stuff up, and uh, basically, as you say, it's either the underneath of the car or the or the uh, the tires that will try and pick it up. But either way, there's there's only one thing happening, and it's coming up. Um, it's a matter of time when, and it didn't take that long, obviously, for that to happen. But again, I think the, the cars were bottoming there, so I think they were, you know, make it given a bit of a hard time to begin with, and probably that loosened the the, the bolting mechanism a bit, and then suddenly it's you know it's rattling free, and then it's only a matter of time before it uh, gets in the way of somebody coming around the corner. And ultimately, this is an age-old problem, isn't it, on street circuits? Plenty of F1 cars have, have hit that kind of thing and cars in other categories so as we mentioned before it's the kind of thing you've seen before isn't it well yeah i mean we had a a, a very bad incident with uh, an f3 car in macau way back in 1984 where it basically destroyed the car but it was a it was a sort of um 40 centimeter by 40 centimeter steel plate like half inch thick it was it was a manhole cover it was interesting because you know claudio langes was driving for us at that time one car and tommy burn another one and, um Claudio just, you know, the car just disappeared and never came around again, so we never didn't know what was going on. Um, and uh, the session continued, all quite happy for another, I don't know how long, 20 minutes, 15 minutes at least. And then it was red flagged. And um, it was it was sort of red flagged because somebody had come into the pits and said, Look, I'm not quite sure what's happening, but there's a, a sort of black hole up near the, it was the hospital gates are at Macau. There's a sort of black hole in the road up there and it wasn't there before. Um, so they stopped practice, went round, and for sure there was a, you know, as I say, a 40 centimetre, 40 centimetre um, plate missing out of the track. Now that's big enough for a Formula 3 wheel to get on it, you know, but again, spoke to Tommy Byrne about it, and he said, yeah, so it appeared, but he said it was just, you know, he drive, I thought it was oil or something on the tr- on the car on the track from a, the car that had, had got damaged there. Um, he said, so I just drove, I just straddled it, because it was, uh, yeah, it was the easiest thing to do. So, um, but anyway, yeah, the plate, it, it came up. Um, caught in the bottom front of the chassis. Luckily, we had a we had a pull rod front suspension at the time in, on the car, and um, there was a sort of fairly beefy bulkhead, I suppose you might call it. It deflected the the steel plate before it uh, wiped his bum out, I suppose, and um, took the bottom out of the chassis, buried itself in front of the engine, and, and bent double. So it, you know, rooted everything. The chassis was destroyed. The front of the engine was destroyed. You know, basically the car just exploded in the middle of the road. He had no idea what happened because he he didn't see anything. He just came around and suddenly the car exploded. And he genuinely came back to the pits and said, I, I, I have no idea what happened. The car just exploded in the middle of the road. That was his comment to me. And I said, oh, yeah, that's no problem. We'll fix it. You know, we'll get it fixed. All right, don't worry. Um, because he didn't have any spare car or anything. We got this thing back. It was no hope, you know. But anyway, they, they, they paid out. They, they paid out. We got, I think, three and a half thousand pounds, I think it was through the late Barry Bland, who organised that race. And um, that was, you know, that was great for us because we had no money. It wasn't that it was three million we were looking for. It was a, a very small amount of money to, to basically get back home again. But, uh, yeah, it's been happening for years. And, you know, we've seen it many, many times where there's bits of curbs come up and wipe, wipe front wings out or whatever. But nothing, uh, nothing as lethal as someone right in the middle of the track where you're least expecting it, I suppose. Yeah, and I think we've seen this thing happen before many times, and I'm sure it will happen again in the future. It shouldn't, but yeah, it's just uh, no matter how careful they are, there's always the possibility this will happen, particularly when it comes to a new circuit. 
Well, let's move on to our main topic because we're nearly at the end of the season. So we thought we'd start to review the season. We've kind of got two episodes that will review the F1 season technically. And so we want to look at what's undoubtedly the car of the season, the Red Bull RB19. And there's been obviously a lot of chat about the uh, the RB19. 20 wins now this season. That's a record. Would you go as far as to say it's the greatest Grand Prix car of the 21st century? It's pretty good, isn't it? You know, at the end of the day, it's uh, it's a car for all occasions, I think you'd say. Um, wet, dry, windy, um, qualifying, racing, short sprint races, looking after the tyres. I, I couldn't sit here and say there's something really blatantly wrong with it. Um, it might be, I suppose, you might just pull in the fact that it sometimes doesn't quite get the tyres working as quick as some other ones um, for that one lap of qualifying which then, you know, means that it's a bit better in the race whenever the, before the tyre degradation sets in. Um, but in general, in Max Verstappen's hands, it's a, a pretty potent piece of kit. Um, and again, I'd have to emphasise that in Max Verstappen's hands because obviously, you know, Sergio, with all the best will in the world, um, just hasn't had the consistency and hasn't had the results that, uh, you know, a potentially a very good car would bring. Now... I think we can all agree that Sergio's not a bad driver. He's driven well in the past, but um, whatever the reasons are, Max and the Red Bull, you know, they're, they're made for each other, I suppose you might call it. And that's, that's, that's not the wrong thing, you know. Who would you listen to if you were in, the, in charge of the technical side in the, in the Red Bull garage and you had two drivers saying two different things? Which one would you sort of uh, focus on more? I, I know I would have to focus on Max because, you know, as I've seen in many occasions, Max has brought the result back whenever they've reacted to the situation. So I, I think it's a very, very good car, but I think you could put a lot of other drivers in it and you might not get the same results. So where does that leave it? You know, it, it, it's, it's probably not... I suppose I'd, I wouldn't say it was a relatively... It was as good a car as, as some, some of the Mercedes cars were through the years since 2014 that we've seen. Sometimes their, their car, I think, suited their, their drivers overall better than the Red Bull does. So I think uh, relatively at that point in time, the Mercedes was probably a better package. Um, but it, you know, it, it was just two drivers were bringing home results as opposed to one driver just being exceptional. So uh, you can't doubt the Red Bull for sure, but as I say, it's it's definitely biased a little bit by the by Max's uh, style of driving. Yeah, it's certainly true. He unlocks some performance in it just through his ability to tolerate some tricky handling characters. It's not dissimilar to what Michael Schumacher used to be able to do, actually, with a sort of pointy car, and he could deal with a rear, whereas other drivers would find that too uh, too unstable. But looking at the RB19. What do you think makes it such a good car? Looking at the technical philosophy, obviously, it builds on last year's car, this new ground effect era. So it's all about the interaction of the mechanical platform and the aero concept, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I mean, the two go hand in hand. The, the aero is, is such an important platform that, you know, unless you control it, unless you control the movement of it, then the centre of pressure of the car will rush up and down from front to back, and uh, and that makes the car inconsistent. That means you, you sort of try to tie the car up and make it stiffer and stiffer just to keep it from moving, and then that makes it horrible over curbs and hurts the traction, low-speed understeer, all sorts of things. So as a, as a package, I think they've got everything going for it um, as far as controlling the aero platform. I know Adrian said that he focused mainly on the suspension as opposed to the aerodynamics, but I think that at the end of the day, if you've got... Um, 
an aerodynamic package that functions, there's not really a huge amount you can do with it. But the biggest thing you can do with it is make sure it doesn't move around too much. And then you've got that aerodynamic package with you at all points in time. It's always difficult because I think, again, if you look at the Red Bull, from my point of view, if you look at the front of the Red Bull, you know, you, you couldn't... It'd be very difficult to sort of tell whether they're at Monza or Monaco in reality with the front wing. You know, it's not like as revolutionary or as big a change as you see in a lot of other cars where they trim the flap, you know, the the the, the trailing edge flap to get rid of downforce or they, they back off wing angles dramatically. It's one of those cars that seems to be able to... Um, you can control the car fairly easily as far as the downforce levels you're running and obviously the rear wing is the thing that gives you the drag but when you reduce the rear wing you reduce the downforce you reduce the drag of the car but then you've got to balance the car with the front wing so within their mechanisms i think they're able to balance the car that bit better well let's come back to this point you were talking about about verstappen being able to get the best out of it and others not when you're in the position of developing a car and you know you've got a driver who wants it in one direction that you think could be faster and a second driver who perhaps you know can't go that way. How do you deal with that? Do you just go with what's the quickest and say, well, it's going to be down to the other guy to keep up? Or do you have to balance it up a little bit? Do you, do you think Red Bull's maybe gone almost too far in that and that they're almost so now dependent on a driver like Verstappen who is extraordinarily good? No question, but it's a bit like when to make the Schumacher comparison, once Schumacher left Benetton and they had Berger and Lacey, they, they couldn't handle those characteristics. And although they had a car that certainly in 96 and probably in 97 could in Schumacher's hands have won plenty of races, those two generally struggled despite some good performances here and there. Yeah, I think it's always a difficult place to put yourself, you know, because at the end of the day, you, you, you have to believe in what you're doing currently, today. But if uh, if Max slips on a banana skin over the winter, you know, um, and they have to put somebody else in at the beginning of next year, it would be a big, big decision as to who that would be. Um, I don't think we could say we've seen anybody in the car over the, the, the eras that we've seen, you know, even down to, to uh, Ricciardo, um, Gasly, Albon, you know, I don't think we've seen anybody in that car that, that's up against Max actually you could say hang on a minute or two this guy's you know really there I mean I think Alex Albon was probably the, the, the from my point of view the closest with the most potential but he didn't really get the time so um, they have put themselves in a difficult position they obviously got all their their eggs in that uh, in the, the one basket and they've got to try and keep that going so it will only be um, it will only be something if, if Max as I say has has an accident or an incident or something um, that they'll end up really finding out. I don't think they'll ever find out without without that happening, and I, don't, I really don't want that to happen. But it could happen, and they sort of need to be careful because, at the end of the day, you've you've got to listen to the second driver. You've got to try to make them comfortable with the situation. You know what they need to be doing is to show their domination more than they're doing now. Is to be finishing first and second all the time, qualifying first and second all the time. Um, or the majority of the time and that's not really happening so um, I think they need to be on the lookout now for for somebody that will have the future potential two or three years time maybe you know really be there and be strong now who that is within the Red Bull the Red Bull world I'm not quite sure there may be somebody there but they need to be looking at that because you know Max is making lots of money he wants to be successful um 
but I think that's that's his thing. You know, he doesn't. All the rest of the stuff is not really doesn't really turn him on that much. He just wants to go racing and win races. If that yeah, if he loses that enthusiasm, then they will need somebody else. And uh, I would be looking pretty pretty hard and fast at, at making sure that a they've got somebody lined up and that Toro Ross is bringing those that guy on, um, which is not really what they're doing at the moment. And looking at the strengths of the car, obviously. It's been very consistent, hasn't it, across a wide range of circuits, except for Singapore. It's worked really well. We know the DRS has been effective. It rides the curbs pretty well, better than some of the other cars. They've said in the past, which is fairly obviously outside, that its aerodynamic efficiency is very strong. So what makes this car so effective in terms of the the headline numbers? Because it's not quite as simple as saying, well, it's got the most downforce because with these cars in a relationship with the ride heights and the different corner types, it's a bit more complicated than that, isn't it? It is a bit more complicated. I, I, I always look at you know the first sort of practice session of a, of a weekend event, and um, I think earlier in the season, up to at least halfway or even slight, slightly further into the season, you know you would see a 99% of the time Max would go out and his first time lap would just be faster than anybody else. The car was good. Car, the car gave him the signals that he needed, Going straight into you know a, a, a first a first run, uh, and he'd end up you know quicker than anybody else, and he'd sort of maintain that really through through that day or even through the weekend. But I think as the season's gone past, the others have come at him a little bit as far as that's concerned. Now that that still happens to an extent, but it's not as easy, and others are sometimes jumping up there and, and giving him a hard time, especially the clerk and the Ferrari whenever it works okay. Um, but the car, I think, does give him confidence in the way he wants to drive. And he does drive the car down into the corner. He needs a good front end to get the car into the corner. Um, and he, as you say, he lives with the rest of it. Um, because if you can get the car, if the car gives you the good signals on the way into the corner, up to the apex of the corner, then I think you know, that, then that's the driver's job to do the next bit and get out of the corner as quickly as possible. You really rely on the car taking you to the apex and you rely on the driver getting off the apex um, using that, using the, you know his his talent and the, the corner and speed, um, but I think that that does mean the car has got you know aerodynamic consistency. Um, obviously, it's an efficient package. That's that's what you build. You build as as efficient a package as possible. And they were the first one at the you know the beginning of the year, where I was was saying in my columns that um, you know they were the first one to have a sort of triple DRS. I suppose you know where the where the DRS would stole the, the beam wing and stole the, the underfloor and they had more control over the underneath of the car using their beam wing than most others. And I think now you can see most other teams have gone to more aggressive beam wing solutions at circuits here and there, um, which again helps you know when the DRS is, is operating. Um, so I think, I think just the understanding of the car is the, is the thing that they have very well, which means they can put the car in a good position whenever they go to a track to begin with. Um, and the car gives the driver feedback that he can comment to the engineers about. Um, and it's fairly consistent comments about it. And I think one of the things you can, you can uh, relate that to is, like Lewis was saying, I think it was Brazil. You know, every corner was a new experience. Every lap was a new experience, and and that's where the Red Bull doesn't have that. It doesn't have a new experience every corner you go to, and that's the important thing really for the feedback to the engineers. You need to be sort of going there with a with the story um, of what's happening on on the lap, and the more consistency you can get through the corners and even through the corner speed range, then the easier it is to find a solution to the individual problem that you've got. 
Because what you find is if the car's acting like Lewis is talking about, where it's an individual, you know, a different car every corner, you're you're reacting to that situation, and and half of those problems you're probably creating yourself. So it's a sort of circle of events. You're never quite sure what's really being created by the car and what's really being created because you're reacting to it. So um, sometimes it can get a bit a bit annoying from an engineering point of view when that's happening. And uh, that's where I think Max wins with the Red Bull. He's able to go back with a good, solid, consistent story of what what the car the feedback the car's given him, and then the engineers can work with that. And in terms of weaknesses, anything stand out? You've mentioned the handling characteristics. That's perhaps one certainly for anybody whose name is not Max Verstappen. But anything else strike you? I guess it's relative lack of performance in qualifying, which seems an extraordinary thing to say for a car that's had a lot of pole positions but it's not as strong in qualifying as it is in the race yeah i think it's a fine line because um it is one of these the one of these situations where it doesn't quite get the tires working as well as some other cars now on occasions that is not always on occasions it doesn't get the tires working quite as quickly and if you take the other extreme the Haas is probably totally the opposite you know they they get the tyres working very quickly, they qualify pretty well, and then it just falls backwards in the race. And I think, you know, Red Bull and the group of people there understand that, you know, the big prizes are actually on a Sunday. Um, it does, it's very good to be on pole, it's always a big help to be on pole, but as long as you can sort of guarantee to be in the top four, then I think there's a very good chance, if you've got a car that looks after the tyres, it's efficient, the DRS works well, there's a very good chance you're going to win the race. And that same characteristic is the, is the fine line, I think, between what makes Max good in the car and Sergio not as good in the car, is the fact that because the front end on, on most occasions does work well enough in qualifying to, to get up to pull, to get to pull, it is the limiting factor. So when Sergio has a problem with it or whenever the car is really good and the front end does work, then Sergio has a problem because he can't quite cope with that good front end quite as well as he can cope with the front end not being quite so good. So it's it's a sort of circle of events, really. It's the one thing that makes the car lose a little bit of performance in qualifying. The front end doesn't work well enough. But when the car has a good tribute and the front end does work well enough, then Sergio suffers a little bit more. So it's a, yeah, it's a difficult fine line because, again, as I say, the, the team pursue big points on race day, which is what wins you championships and wins you lots of money. Do you think it's inevitable that next year, for the third year of these regulations, the gap will close up? I think it has to close up. I mean, we can see that the teams that have made progress this year have they've closed in on the visual concept of, of the Red Bull. Now, I'm not saying that is it's the visual concept that makes things work, but they've closed in on that visual concept. And it's one of those sort of situations where it's, it's all the stuff we don't see that really makes the car work. Um, I think that, you know, whenever Mercedes, for example, did their... Uh, huge amount of anti-dive in the front suspension to try and support the front of the car that was good they couldn't change the rear of the car they couldn't put the anti-lift on it and that's even more important and I think actually one of the things you could bring up here is if you look at the um, if you look at, at uh, Vegas at the end of that long straight when the cars come down there with a the, with the DRS open and you initially see them just touch the brake pedal you'll see the sparks from the front of the floor you know with immediate effect as such or, or they're increasing because the car's obviously low anyway but they're increasing the minute you touch the brake pedal and if you can sort of put one eye on the sparks and one eye on the rear wing and watch it shut because the DRS shuts whenever the brake pedal comes on 
then as the, as the rear wing shuts, the, the sparks stop immediately because it's, uh, you know, the load going into the rear of the car just basically means the front of the car rises up that little bit. So uh, all that platform control that the Red Bull have exploited dramatically over the last two seasons, you know, there's teams out there that can do that um, and will be doing that because it, it will make a massive difference um, to the stability of the car on the way into the corner. Now that massive difference, you know, could mount up to a tenth or two tenths. It's not as though it's going to be second. You know, Red Bull aren't going to get left behind because everybody else goes that direction. But it will be interesting because I think that, um, from my point of view, the mechanical control of the car is is, you know, very very important now. It's always been important, but once you've got a car that's producing the higher percentages of its downforce from underneath, from the underneath surface, then it becomes just even more important. When you're producing downforce with you know the main the main amount of downforce from the rear wing or the front wing, then you know the, the car the platform control was still important but not quite as important. So I think there's lots of room for other teams to to move forward in an area, and it's not just about aerodynamics; it's about controlling the aerodynamics. So I think we'll see quite a bit of that. So yeah, I, I expect it to close up a bit, but that doesn't mean that Red Bull haven't got something up their up their sleeve ready for next year either. Well, that's the interesting question, isn't it? How much development potential there still is in the car, whether there's something extra they can do, some new thing that perhaps others won't have detected. And you can argue it both ways, can't you? You can say, well, in the third year of regulations, there isn't anything new to do. But you could also say, well, they were limited for the past year with their aerodynamic testing because of that extra penalty for the cost cap breach. So there could be something there. What would you expect to happen in that regard? Do you think they're still plenty more goodness for them to get out of this car concept yes i think there's more goodness to get out of it i think the goodness will be consistency um more than just out and out performance i think there's some circuits we've seen this year where everything they have sits it and really and truthfully there was nobody going to see the way they went um and and that's a matter of now taking that knowledge of that that goodness at that given track and applying it across more tracks um it's it's always a difficult thing because we're um you have such a big variety of tracks from, as I keep saying, from Monaco to Monza. You have a, quite a big variety of tracks. But there is a snapshot right in the middle there where you have, have certain tracks that have got, you know, certain characteristics. But even, doesn't matter what track you're at, there are fast corners and slow corners at all of them. And it just depends on what makes the track up as far as lap time is concerned. Um, you know, if you have 10 fast corners and three slow corners, then you want a car that's good in fast corners. And if you've got 10 slow corners and three fast corners, then you want a car that's good in slow corners. So the thing is that you spend more time in a slow corner than you do in a fast corner. And that's the sort of area, I think, where you'll probably see them uh, trying to focus a little bit more on to help their lower speed, lower lower aerodynamic load corners a little bit more. Um, but I think there's potential in there. Obviously, there's not as much... You know, when you're winning and you're on top of the pile, there's not as much as there is from somebody that's you know down the back of the pile. But there's still potential in there for them to find you know that two or three tenths probably, whereas in some other cars it's probably five or six tenths. Um, so the competition I think will close up a bit, but I still see Red Bull being fairly much the top of the pile. Maybe not by as much, which makes it good for us because that's what we want to see. You want to see racing, and I think also the team wants to see racing. I think Red Bull will go away, and Max will go away from a race meeting thinking. You know, when he's had a good fight and still won, that was a good race. You know, you don't want to just disappear into the distance. It's lovely to do it, but it's it's just a bit better if you don't and just 
actually you know have a battle on your way to, to getting there you have to use the old gray matter between the two ears to to work out what's going on and i think overall from what you've been saying the expectation that others will catch them is there but it's a question of how much buy isn't it so uh, it's not looking like the red bull supremacy will uh, will ease too much anytime soon but hopefully it won't be quite as straightforward as it seems to have been for them of course it's never that easy but uh, the others will inevitably start to catch up and make it slightly tougher yeah, but I think the motivation of the success this year will also bleed through onto next year. Yeah, it's a, it's a big, big thing. When you when you know that the decisions you're making as the season has gone past, the, the decisions you're making are are pretty good decisions. You know, the, the development direction and how you get on top of it every weekend is is good. Then, you know, you're, you know that you can go into the winter feeling, yep, we're doing this, we're doing this, we're doing this. And you package it all in the best way possible because you believe 100% in it. Uh, and that's that's a difficult thing. That's where some teams are struggle a little bit more. It's about what you really believe in. Uh, you know, we've seen it again going back to Mercedes. You know, they made mistakes this year. They've had races where they were, they were decent. They've had races where they were poor. The the big thing I find is that you know Toto Wolf will always stand up, as they said after uh, Vegas. You know, we had a, a a quick car, but we were unlucky. Um, um, yeah, that might be so, but the end result is the end result. It's how you, you know, that's how it all unfolds, and you have to accept it and you have to believe it. Believe in it. You can be unlucky because you're racing with people that you maybe shouldn't be racing with, and things happen. Um, but that's 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 part of the package, isn't it? You know, if you're going to really win, you've got to get out the front and get going, like Mercedes did for so many years. But make sure you believe. Make sure you see what's in front of you, and you actually believe what's happening is real. I think sometimes Mercedes struggle from struggle with that a little bit um but i want to see you know ferrari mercedes red bull hopefully a couple of others you know really you know with a bit of a lottery every weekend as to who who's going to be uh, sitting on pole because still pole position is a big place to be you know that's, a, that's an important place to be and we saw i think in vegas that you know max and is steaming into turn one was that right or was that wrong you know he knew in his mind he didn't want to get behind behind uh, Leclerc, because if he had been behind uh, Leclerc, he would have ended up um, grinning his tyres so much earlier with the turbulence from his car and the lack of downforce in the front of it. So the the big thing was to get into that corner first. And, you know, he did it. Yes, the track was slippery and he went wide and so on and so forth. I think that rule's stupid as well, you know, about the, the fact of what can you do? When do you get your five-second penalty? Should it be a five-second penalty? Should it be more? You know, should you have to do a drive-through because of it immediately? Or there has to be something looked at there because at the end of the day, you know, the whole basis there was to drive hard enough to get pull out that five seconds on the clerk before the first pit stop. Unfortunately, on the way there, he did damage his own front tires, and you know that went away on him again. But at the end of the day, was he won the race and Charles Leclerc finished second. So I suppose nothing really lost. But if Clerk could have led that first lap, I think we might have seen a completely different story for that race. Yeah, very much so. And there's a great deal of controversy still about those particular penalties, but that's probably a topic for another day. You're listening to the Race F1 Tech Show, brought to you by Aramco. Aramco continuously push the limits of engineering excellence. As the global energy partner of F1, they drive a shared vision to real-world innovation that aims to lower emissions, enhance performance and accelerate human potential. Aramco, powered by HAL. 
If you're listening to this podcast, you understand the value of asking questions. At Aramco, answering questions helps them engineer a better future. So if you'd like to know how something works in F1, send us a question to answer on a future episode of this podcast. Any topic, as long as it's at least tangentially technical, related to F1, about F1 cars today, F1 cars in the past, or even in the future. As I always say, no stupid questions, no question too difficult either. So chuck it our way. Gary will always take on everything you send in. We've got a trio of questions today, and the first comes from Colin Jones, who says, Last week, Gary mentioned that half a millimetre of ride height can adjust the handling of the car. This made me wonder what manufacturing tolerances are used for the tyres. Can the minor variation in tyre diameter have an impact on the car, or does the weight of the car and suspension mean any variation is eliminated? On a similar theme, does the diameter of the tyre change as they wear, and does this have an impact on handling during a stint? Keep up the good work. Regards, Colin Jones. Um, yeah, Colin, good question. Um, yes, I mean, half a millimetre, millimetre ride height is quite critical to the car. You think the, these cars, you know, whenever you're looking at them on the track, in a medium speed corner, the front ride height of the car is probably, you know, 10, 10 12 millimetres or something. The rear ride height of the car, double that-ish. Uh, um, so, you know, half a millimetre or a millimetre is a big percentage of that height. And that moves the centre of pressure around the car. You know, the underfloor centre of pressure will come forward with lowering the front ride height. That's why I was saying just a little bit earlier there about the, the Red Bull and how you can look at the front of their car and not really see big differences in it from low to high speed tracks. Not, not much anyway. I mean, they still do adjust the wing and they still do trim the back, the rear flap for the extremes like, uh, like Monza. But, you know, they could also be adjusting the, the ride height a little bit you know, raise the front ride height a little bit, you lose quite a bit of front downforce, but you keep the, the flow structure, aerodynamic flow structure, the same, uh, or more or less the same down the rest of the car. So there's lots of ways of trimming that downforce. Now, going into what you're saying there about the fact that I'm saying that the tyre, the uh, the ride height's so critical, and you're saying, well, the, are the tyres consistent enough? The way these tyres are made, um, or I'm pretty sure the way they're made, and it's been a while since I've actually went to visit a tyre factory, but something I must do sometime soon. Um, you know, they're made, um, they're put on a, a sort of dummy rim, as such, I suppose you might call it. And um, the carcass is all made, the, the rubber is bonded on like a bit of a remould, I suppose you might call it. And then they're put up and they're machined at a certain pressure. So you get the pressure inside the tyre, the machine off the surface, the profile of the tyre. So the profile of the tyre and the and the and the tyre size at a certain pressure which is probably around about the working pressure of the tyre, um, is is pretty consistent. I don't know what their tolerance would be, but it would be, would be tighter than half a millimetre for sure. Um, so the tyres themselves should start life being fairly consistent um, as far as all that's concerned. What really happens, I suppose, is the fact that you know when the, when the tyre carcass is made, all of the parts of that carcass aren't, you know, it's like a, I keep saying it's like a new pair of shoes. You know, it takes a while before they sort of bed in with you and you stretch them to, to sort of suit your feet. So um, that needs to happen and that will release the tyre a little bit and make it a little bit more compliant. And that will change the tyre characteristic fractionally. But I think the, the fact that um, the tyres start life pretty much pretty close to the, to the same sizes from set to set. We used to check the diameter of the tyres all the time with cross-ply tyres because they're always different. You put a tape measure around them and measure them. Some teams might still even do that just to, just to reassure themselves. And yes, they will wear as the, as, the, um, 
as the race goes past. I mean, you could you could you could probably see radially. You could see a good millimeter, a millimeter and a half being worn off a tire, as on a radius. Uh, so the car will get lower, um, and and really and truthfully, that you know, that's okay because the fuel load's coming off the car, so the car gets a little bit higher. So the two go hand in hand to a certain extent. So. Um, it is a black heart, you know, there's four black bits of rubber that touch the ground, and it is a black heart. That doesn't matter about all the aerodynamics, you've got everything. If you don't look after that black bit of rubber that goes onto the track and get the best out of it, then, you know, it will cause you grief. And uh, the more you can put into the effort into that, making sure you understand that tyre, then the better. Yeah, and that will always be the case, I suspect, as long as racing cars run on tyres. Our next question comes from Keith Lloyd, who says, In some races during the season, the action stalls due to DRS trains forming. Do you think something like a time-limited push-to-pass power boost like an IndyCar would provide better racing? Drivers could then choose when to deploy their extra power boost, and as they wouldn't all do it at the same time, it might lead to less bunching. Or would it? I'd be interested in your thoughts on this. Well, first thing, um, Keith, I think is we don't want to enter just something else. Um, I mean, I'm not a great believer in, in DRS or the way it works. So I would like to see the DRS or some time to try the DRS so that when you're more than a second apart, you can use it to catch up to the driver in front of you. So you do end up with a bunch of cars that are all together. Um, but at that point in time, you're not able to use the DRS then. So it's down to, going to be down to you pulling off some overtaking manoeuvres. We saw some of them in Vegas, and they were good good overtaking efforts, and I'm sure the drivers loved them. So I'm not I'm not disagreeing with you, the fact that, you know, you get a DRS train, it's always bad. Perhaps within the same thing as we have now, you could get to the point where you can only, you know, you only have it for a certain amount of times if you're following the same car. You know, you just end up with the with fact that if you're stuck behind the car for three laps, then then you don't get it. So you end up dropping away a bit. I mean, the drivers are starting to use it a little bit now, like Verstappen at the end of the race was saying about um, Perez, it, it, you know, trying to drag Perez along with him. And we saw Saints and Norris doing it a few races ago where the drivers are being a bit clever about making sure there's somebody between them and, and the real opposition. So there's there's going to be more to that in the future, I suppose, where you're, you're actually trying to generate a DRS train um, to help you with your position if you're up front of it um, and you can get protection from behind because you know the car behind you isn't acting as quick a car but it's just better for you to just drive that little bit slower and allow them to stay there um, so yeah something could happen um, I don't well, I don't want to see them to have a boost button or anything like that I think it's just a matter of maybe you know looking at it in some other way still using DRS but limiting the use of it or changing how it's used um, some circuits it's you know it's too powerful. Some circuits it's not quite powerful enough. Some circuits you have it twice, like Brazil, you know the 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 pit straight and then the next straight. So if you you know strategically, if you can be in the right place, the right time, you can get either two whammies of it or um, or one on a bet. Um, so it probably needs to look up pretty soon, to be honest. I think, or else it's going to end up being something that's used more strategically than than just using it as an overtaking device. And our third question comes from Neil Butler from Denmark. Apologies if I mispronounced that, as I often uh, do. But the question is, looking at racing cars from Jackie Stewart's time to now, the air intake scoop slash roll bar behind the driver's head looks draggy and top-heavy to me. 
Considering modern F1 cars are pushing a lot of air underneath the car, could designers play around with Venturi effects and fit slim ram scoops into the floor? Use that air to feed the engine and turbos, or at least use it for cooling. As an example, think of the Mosquito or the Corsair having oil cooler ducts, etc. in the wings to reduce drag, as opposed to the BF109s of that period, with half a bucket bolted onto the right side of the fuselage. If this was feasible, the roll bar would be just that, a piece of bodywork that could be aerodynamically shaped to push more air over the rear wing. The centre of gravity would be lowered, less bodywork, less weight, less dragged. All sounds good to me, but then I'm not an engineer. The question is, why aren't they doing it? Speaking of drag, why don't they have rear cameras, screens in the driver's eye line, and lose the wing mirrors? It'd probably improve rearward vision and might have avoided K-Mag's drift towards a Hulk and Alban sandwich. Thank you for your content. It's always interesting and informative. So lots to get into there, Gary, including testing your uh, aircraft knowledge. <laughs> yeah, my aircraft knowledge. Yeah, I've been on an aeroplane. Um, taking the last part first, the, the drag and the, and the rear view cameras, I think that is quite a sensible idea. I think that's the direction we should be going in, to be honest. Whether it's an add-on or a replacement is a, is a matter of how reliable and consistent I think you can get it. But I think as we, as we see now with all the... Um, flashing lights on the rear wing and all that stuff you know they do work they are there they can be seen and that means that a camera there somewhere would be able to be seen as well and it can be very very small and as you say it could it could be in the driver's eye line and you can see right across the back of the car um as opposed to down each side of the car with the current mirrors now i'm again i'm not sure why technology hasn't moved on it's you know it's it's a real thing it's good i have a little motorhome here and i have one in the back of my motorhome just for reversing, but it is, you know, it is good. Um, it obviously needs to be reliable, but I think that we should be seeing that sort of thing being tested very, very soon, um, and I'd be disappointed if we didn't. You could say, well, it might switch off, might not work, blah, blah, blah. Well, then, yeah, okay, a mirror can fall off as well. Um, so you know, there's always things in reliability you have to look at, but I'm sure that can be handled. Going back to the uh, to the, the start of the question, Jackie Stewart and... Uh, I've worked for Jackie for a few years, and it's a, he's, a, he's a great guy. Um, cars have changed a lot since then, obviously. Um, now, whenever we go back to, to the normally aspirated times, um, you had huge air scoops. I mean, I remember the, the Leger, the, the sort of christened, I think it was a cow. It had, like, had, a, had half a cow up in the rollover bar. Um, and at that point in time, the philosophy then was always, you know, get it bigger, and it will give you more power. And you, you obviously get a, uh, you get a, a pressure, a base pressure inside the airbox um, at a certain speed. Um, you know, depends on the track, but, you know, if it's a high-speed track like Monza, for example, um, you'll carry that base pressure quite a long time, it's like 30 millibars above ambient. Um, and when you get to that point in time, the engine sort of doesn't use any more of that air. It'll, the air will spill around the sides of the airbox. So if you have a huge airbox at Monza, for example, you'll be destroying the rear wing. Um, but you'd have a smaller airbox at Monza and you'd have a, um, a larger one at place like Monaco, where you're going slower a lot of the time. It was quite funny because in 1997 with Peugeot, we started to do quite a lot of work on the internal flow in the airbox relative to the size of the airbox and uh, we, we made quite big gains out of it and it was all down to the, the size of it, the firing order, um, lots of detailed work but now it's not as normally aspirated engines, it's turbocharged engines so in effect you could pick up that airflow from anywhere you wanted um, and, and the turbo would 
bring it up to to a base pressure for the engine. Um, but the thing is, you know, you want nice, clean, tidy airflow. So going into the engine, you will probably try to do it up there in the, on the airbox area. You have to have the rollover bar, which is up there anyway, um, and it's a very, you know, stringent roll bar um, tests. So the roll bar structure is there, and then the airbox allows you to, or the engine cover and the airbox allows you to fare all that stuff in. Um, and the thing is as well that if you look at the triangle that they have on the engine cover, you know, from the side view, there is an area where that bodywork-wise you have to have bodywork there. And again, that was brought up long, long time ago because of sponsorship. The teams didn't want not to have an engine cover um, and or an area there that they could put sponsors onto. So because some teams were going to the extent of, of you know eliminating parts of the airbox, and that meant you know money money coming in wasn't uh, as good. So on so forth. So there's lots and lots of reasons for lots of things. There are lots of little ducks around the car here and there, taking an airflow to certain components, but not the the main functionality of the car. I suppose you might call it. I mean, if you look at the Red Bull, their, their radiator intakes are, as such, a letterbox intake, probably as small or smaller than any other car in the pit lane. But that doesn't mean they don't need airflow to cool stuff. So they just discreetly have a few little ducts here and there that uh, allow airflow to come in and cool other stuff. Um, and that they, those ducts are placed, as you suggest, in a, in a less critical position for generating the downforce. But I don't think we're going to see the, the rollover bar duct being replaced anytime soon. As you know, most of the cars have something like three ducts there, one in the middle that will feed the, the turbo, one each side that will feed some type of cooling devices up there on top of the engine cover. And you know, in years gone by, the last thing you would have done would have been to put a, um, a, a radiator of some sort on top of the engine. You know, everything a few years ago was about center of gravity, getting it as low as possible, everything down as low as possible, low as possible. And then you know things take over. Other other solutions come, and um, you know you find solutions to different problems in different ways. But I don't think you'll see the engine cover disappearing just yet. Yeah, and certainly that fundamental architecture and shape of the the Formula One car has been pretty much locked for quite a long time now, hasn't it? All the way probably back to sort of the late to seventy two, really, with the uh, the very basic architecture of the car. So stuff doesn't change much. Uh, it's worth mentioning on the rear view mirrors thing that is something that the fi has been looking at there's a few little concerns about it where you put a screen the question of uh the 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 sort of brightness of the screen and how that might affect visibility and the the switch of focus uh, from on the screen to uh the real world etc but it is something that is being experimented with and uh and looked at and discussed so it, it may come in uh, at some point in the uh, in the future, the devil's in the detail on that one, but uh, that's probably more likely to happen than, uh, <laughs> as you say, the change to the uh, to the air intakes. But uh, yeah, always an interesting uh, thing to consider. Thanks very much for those questions. Remember, you can send your questions to podcasts at the-race.com and we'll answer them on a future show. Thanks very much, Gary, for your insight as always. It's always fascinating to, to hear from you and draw on your expertise. And we'll be back in a couple of weeks after the Abu Dhabi season finale for the second part of our look back at the year technically, where we'll look at some of the other cars and some of the other design trends. So join us then for more from Gary. You've been listening to the Race F1 Tech Show, brought to you by Aramco. Be sure to like, follow or subscribe on your favourite podcast app so you never miss an episode.
The Athletic.